Hello and welcome to this series of the World Built Environment Forum podcast, where we explore some of the key issues around the built and natural environment with leading experts. I'm Ken Creighton, Director of Thought Leadership and Public Affairs at RICS, and today I'm joined by Professor Maddie Simiatiki, Director of the Infrastructure Institute at the School of Cities, University of Toronto, and Professor in the Department of Geography and Planning, the University of Toronto. We'll be discussing how creative mixed-use buildings can create more equitable and sustainable cities and exploring the idea behind the creative mixed-use model, the collaborative process involved in the goals it hopes to achieve. Welcome. Hi, nice to be with you. It's great to have you here. Professor Simiatiki, let's jump right into it. People will be familiar with mixed-use buildings, but what does the creative mixed-use model do differently? So people will be very familiar with uh, mixed-use buildings, buildings that have retail on the main floor uh, with uh, housing up above or offices that uh, are mixed with a retail concourse or public transit in the basement. And that's, that's been fairly well established and played out in cities. What creative mixed use does is pushes the envelope on the scale, the size, and the types of mixing of uses uh, that are put in the same building. So what you tend to find is very large-scale public, private, and nonprofit uses all blended together in the same building envelope. And what it allows you to achieve is outcomes that are better than any one partner could on their own. It allows us to build spaces where development can happen and where social and community benefits can be achieved. So let me just give you a few examples just so people can picture what we're actually talking about here. These are all examples that have actually been built in the city of Toronto here uh, in Canada or are currently underway. Uh, We have projects where there are large-scale high schools with two condominium towers right up above. We have examples of the Film Festival Theatre, the Toronto International Film Festival, one of the largest film festivals in the world. It's about to start uh, in a week or two. And the main film festival theatre is in downtown Toronto, uh, seven-story film festival theatre with a 50-story condominium tower up above. We have the old hockey stadium in the city that was uh, becoming increasingly dilapidated. The team moved out. uh, And uh, to revitalize it, there's now a grocery store uh, with a university's athletic center built into the side of it with the sports teams for that university playing under the old dome of the hockey stadium. So a really uh, creative, adaptive uh, mixed use uh, with a heritage component to it. And increasingly now we're seeing social services mixed into market types of buildings as well. So we now have an upscale condominium building, uh, that's apartments, uh, upscale luxury apartments, with a a homeless shelter for women and families built into the side of that uh, facility. So you're seeing all these types of mixes. And what it allows to do is in a city that's growing very quickly, that has a lot of development, you're seeing social spaces that that, that are built into uh, the, the market uh, types of buildings uh, so that the city can grow and uh, there are spaces for uh, public services and social and community spaces as the city evolves. That's great. You touched on a lot of benefits there, and um, I'm sure you can expand upon that. And, and also, talk a little bit about how the model's been received, maybe from some of the different stakeholders and, and their take on it. One of the incredible things is this has been an innovation of city building uh, that's happened here in Toronto and in Canada a little bit more widely that has flown almost entirely under the radar. This has happened as a happy accident and in many ways as a last resort rather than intentional policy. Typically, what's happened is that each of the partners 
for a variety of reasons, couldn't achieve what they wanted to by themselves. So for example, there will be a development site that's on a location where there's a neighborhood opposition or there's some contention. And so the developer couldn't get their zoning approvals without agreeing to provide some community type of amenity as part of their project. Or in some cases, the nonprofit owns the site outright uh, from the outset, but they don't have the money to actually redevelop a building that's becoming increasingly uh, dilapidated and uh, outdated. And so they need to find a partner. Or in some cases, the government owns the land and is looking to redevelop. But in their case, they don't they don't have the money or they aren't able to provide the public service uh, that's needed in that area themselves. So they look for partners. So in many ways, this has come about as a way of, of, of creative problem solving between different partners partners that end up working together in ways that if they could have, to be to be frank, they would have done it on their own. It's easier, it's faster, there's less risk, there's less uh, opportunity for things to go wrong. But for all sorts of reasons, whether it's money or approvals or community support or transferring risk of construction, they, they need to partner. And so in our community, this has been seen as really a, a, pro, a creative problem-solving approach that's ended up actually being really advantageous and building cities in ways that uh, you can grow and you can change and development can take place, but you're also making sure that the important social services and social spaces are available for a growing and thriving community. So in terms of awareness, is this something that's more natural and organic and there's just certain forces getting out of the way? Or is it something where you have to increase awareness and explain to people the benefits of this model? Well, when it was as a last resort, people were coming up with it and really designing each project. So when you'd studied one of these projects, you'd studied one. There was no model. There was no uh, reproducibility. And as my team at the University of Toronto started to, to look at these projects, what we learned is that actually this form of creative problem solving was really effective in terms of enabling each of the partners to achieve what they wanted and for wider uh, city building objectives. And so what we've done is we've tried to publicize this model and make it something that is uh, more of a standard approach and something that people do look to as uh, an intentional strategy because it will help them achieve their goals and realize city building objectives. And and so uh, we have been uh, working very hard to highlight where this works, what the lessons learned are, and and how others can can go down this path in a way that doesn't require some of the pain and the the, the heartache of getting here as a last resort when your project isn't going to succeed or when your organization doesn't have money uh, to proceed or when your nonprofit is at risk of losing its facility because they don't have the money to rebuild or they're being uh, evicted from the space as the landowner is selling the building. I mean, these are all real world issues that have happened. And what we're trying to say now is let's look at this as a real intentional strategy. Mm. And so our group has been our group has been first studying it to, to understand what what the conditions are that are necessary to make creative mixed use buildings come about and successful. And then we've been putting on a series of exhibitions and working with different stakeholders to highlight where they can succeed and how they can go down this path in a really uh, uh, effective manner. It sounds like the opportunity to really take this as a positive, proactive model as opposed to a model that people end up in to solve problems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So some of the the learnings, I'm thinking about bringing different stakeholders together, that there got to, there has to be some challenges in that. And, and even if with the physical building and construction, I wonder if you can touch on some of the challenges or things you've, you've learned. 
Sure. So let me take those in turn. So first, in terms of the partnerships, I mean, partnership is difficult. You are you are subsuming some of your own interests to your partner with the understanding that you are going to get something of value back. And so learning how to partner and what is important to the other stakeholder in that arrangement is really important. We, we've been uh, providing partnership ready programming because what we've learned is that each of the different stakeholders doesn't necessarily understand their counterpart and what their counterpart's needs are. When it comes to the nonprofits in these arrangements, many times they are extremely good at providing their frontline services and have uh, very little, if any, uh, real estate experience. And so we've been working very closely with uh, organizations and nonprofits to give them training in what it means to be partner ready, how you uh, prepare to, to, to enter into a real estate arrangement and what you need to know to make sure that, that you don't uh, lose your shirt in that deal. Conversely, with, with the private sector, we've also been having conversations with them about what it means when uh, you look for a tenant or a partner who's going to own part of, uh, of one of these buildings to understand uh, what their needs are and how you become a good partner. And similarly, uh, with government stakeholders to understand their role in these projects too. So we've been doing a lot of uh, the partnership ready type of training and understanding of how you need to work together. To give you a really concrete example, one of the organizations in Canada that has a lot of uh, sites where they're looking for adaptive reuse is churches. Like many places, uh, the church congregations are dwindling. And as as they dwindle, uh, they're looking for things to do with their real estate holdings. And so they're consolidating and in many cases selling the buildings. And a lot of the church congregations, I mean, they're mission-driven organizations. So they, if they, if they can, they'd like to do something with a purpose in those buildings. But oftentimes the congregations don't have the governance or the decision-making structures, and in many cases, the expertise in real estate to get into those arrangements. So you have these beautiful sites, often on main roads, where development has already taken place around them with huge opportunity. And the, the congregation wants to do social, some, something with a social purpose, uh, as well as uh, being able to recoup their costs and, and, and oftentimes uh, uh, pay for that development. And just having the skill set and the decision-making and the governance in place is often quite challenging. So we've, uh, you know, that's one of the areas, that's just an example of one of the groups that there's been a lot of focus in in Canada on making sure that they have the skill sets and the expertise and the the supports uh, to be able to do these type of arrangements. Now, in terms of the physical spaces, this is, again, a really interesting observation is how you apportion a building uh, so that each of the parties has the space uh, that they need, the autonomy that they need, but also how they're intermingled and and interwoven together. And what we found is that typically, even when there's synergy, you need synergies between the programming. That's the first thing. If you have real conflicting programming, either in terms of the time of day or the uses or noise or smells, that's that's going to create problems. So there is a need to, to make sure that there's a synergies. And then there's ways of laying out the building where each group gets this part of the building that is most valuable to them. And each of them has control over their own space. So to give you the example of the homeless shelter, in one of the cases that we've studied here in Toronto, what happened was the market uh, condominium apartments, they took the front part of the building that was fronting onto the main street and one side of the building because that was the area that was going to be most valuable for them. And they had an ent- they have an entrance off uh, one of the, the side streets there. The shelter is for uh, women and families, and it's actually built into the back of the building and the side of the building. And the reason for that is that they actually want more privacy. 
It's a women and family shelter. In some instances, the people staying there are, are uh, leaving situations of domestic violence. Uh, and, and, and in other instances, they need privacy. So they actually don't want the front part that might be more valuable for, for a market condominium, but for them as a nonprofit and, and, and for the type of service they're providing, actually the side and the back of the building is better for them. And so it helps to address some of these concerns that people do have about mixing of uses around issues of poor doors or poor floors that we have heard a lot about, that we don't want to create inequalities. What we want to do is make sure that each of the various partners gets the part of the building that helps and benefits them the most. Similarly, with the example I provided of the rebuilding of the uh, hockey arena here in Canada, the grocery store took the corner of the building. That's the most valuable retail site. They get the main floor and one floor uh, up above that in half in, in a half of the building. And then the athletic center gets the upper floors. And, and as I mentioned, the, the sports, uh, the, the, the skating rink is under the old dome of the arena. And it's really like a, a, an amazing place to go and skate and be a university team playing under this historic roof uh, where uh, the home team, the home hockey team uh, won uh, Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup. So really, you know, you get you, you see the types of mixing that that can take place and the way that each party benefits, but it, it has to be done in a really strategic way so that each is, is, is getting uh, the most out of that space. Those are great examples. And it, it leads me to question about the ongoing running day-to-day of the building, you mentioned these collaborative relationships, and I'm thinking of your example of the, of the church and how does that work? Or are there any special considerations for the collaboration and running of the facility? These uh, collaborations are really a marriage. And it's so interesting because over the years, we've talked a lot about public-private partnerships in the infrastructure space, for example, which when you actually unpack them, they're essentially public-private contracts. You know, that there are two parties who want an arrangement and they come up with a contract. In this case, you are sharing space together uh, and you are expecting to be in those spaces in perpetuity. And interestingly, in many of the cases that we've studied here in, in Toronto, it's not the private sector party building the building and then renting to the nonprofit or to the government, they actually each own their space outright. They are, it's more of like a condominium model where each of the spaces is owned separately. And then they have a joint arrangement about how they're going to manage uh, the space. So it's really a long-term relationship that is going to require a, a governance model and, and a, a framework of how they're going to work together. And so what they do is they they sit down at the outset and they figure out for the principles that they're going to work together by. And they have a long-term, uh, they have a, a, a structure of how that's going to be done. And that has to do with all of the aspects of maintenance. It has to do with upkeep. And in a place like Canada, it has to do with things like show, uh, snow shoveling and, and who's going to shovel which part of the walk and who's going to uh, get the revenues from the parking garage and who's going to you know, have access to which spaces. And it's, 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 these are detailed uh, arrangements that, are, that set out how you're going to manage this shared resource over a long period of time with the expectation that it's in most of these cases, it's not like one party can uh, evict the other if they're not getting along. It's like uh, if you live in a, a semi-detached house or a row house, the person beside you owns theirs just like you own yours and you have to work together. And and these are the same types of arrangements and, and they come with all sorts of legal agree- agreements. What we found so far is from our research, we haven't heard much about conflicts and tensions once the projects are underway and once the buildings are open, that once they reach their steady state, uh, so far they've tended to work uh, very well and the the agreements have held up and and people uh, are living up to their obligations. Well, on on that point, I think the the world knows or believes that Canadians are famously good at getting along. 
in that context, what is special about Toronto? Seriously, or, or is there anything special? Why is this happening in Toronto? You know, other than the fact that it's just a fantastic city. What's special about Toronto? And, and are there any reasons why this couldn't just happen everywhere? So first and foremost, I have been asking that same question. Like I thought when I started seeing this here in Toronto, that this was a model that when I went internationally and looked around the world in cities like London or Hong Kong, or Singapore or elsewhere, that you would find this approach being much more common. And uh, it turns out that it is fairly unique to Toronto. And there's a number of reasons. One is that in the last 20 to 25 years, we've really grown upwards. And so as there's increased density, each little plot of land uh, that maybe in the old days would have been seen as a leftover that you couldn't build on is now hugely valuable. Uh, and so the value of each site is is, is worth more. Uh, and also, conversely, it's harder to find land for social purpose projects and, and, and services in the city. So that's created the, sort of the pressure and the, the, the opportunity uh, to do these type of projects. Then there's also something in our uh, development culture here uh, where there is a group of developers, certainly not all, but there are some developers who, if the right project is put in front of them, will take take the opportunity to to achieve a a social objective as part of their project. And uh, this isn't to say that everyone is altruistic in all of these arrangements, but if a business arrangement can be reached where each party can achieve their financial objectives, as well as doing some social good, there there are a group of developers, as well as a group of nonprofits profits and different uh, public institutions who will take those opportunities. And what we found is that uh, when you look at over the portfolio of projects that have been built, our group has studied these projects and, and have found about 50 of them. And what you find is that there's a similar group of stakeholders uh, from the public, private and nonprofit sectors who have repeatedly entered into these agreements as they get more expertise in them and as they get more comfortable and familiar with their different stakeholders So and, the, and their different party uh, partners. So there are a group of developers, as I've mentioned. Then there are different parts of the city government. For example, the Toronto Library is an example where there are a number of libraries now that have apartments or condominiums up above them. There's a university uh, now called Toronto Metropolitan University that is a landlocked uh, city center university that would have really struggled to find sites and has become expert at partnering. So in one example, there's a movie theater in the downtown that now that the the university uses as their classrooms during the day, and then it becomes a movie theater in the late afternoon and evenings. You know, so that's so that's another civic institution that has uh, entered into these arrangements. And then there's a whole host of nonprofits, some of them affordable housing uh, providers, some of them social services who enter into these. Like, for example, the YMCA is another one where they have a number of YMCA buildings uh, where there's a recreation center on the main floor or the first two floors. And then in one case, there's student housing up above. Like, what a great example where students need places to exercise and places to live. Uh, and the, 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 the YMCA is typically closed in the evening at night. So why not have another use up above? There's no reason that that has to be just a two-story building uh, in a city that's growing upwards and is increasingly expensive. We can do so much more with the air rights up above. So you start to see these frequent flyers, as we call them, who continue, who get the model, who feel more comfortable with it and have found partners that they can uh, consistently work with. So I would, I, what I hope will happen is that as we show that this has worked here, that there's really an opportunity for other cities to learn what has worked and for, their, for this to become part of uh, the development culture in, in other places around the world as well. That's, that's great. Yeah. If, 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 the more you think about it, the win-win opportunities just seem endless. Can you talk about the financial perspective, advantages, disadvantages, any other risks that 
come along with this? Yeah, a lot of creative mixed use is about solving financial problems and and issues related to risk. On the financial side, as I mentioned, in many cases, the nonprofits don't have the money to redevelop their own sites or uh, create spaces for uh, affordable housing or for shelters. So they, they are looking for partnerships. But what's interesting here is that it's not only the nonprofits that benefit. In examples uh, with the private sector, what we see is that, for for example, uh, main floor retail is becoming increasingly hard uh, to rent, right? We we know that the internet uh, and online shopping has really started to eat away at some of the the main street uh, retail. Uh, And so they're also looking for other types of tenants who want long-term tenancy and who uh, have resources coming from various different places. And so they can also benefit some of the spaces for them that are very, that can often be hard to rent, like the first floor, or in some cases, the second floor of a building. Maybe they can rent the retail space, but it's harder to rent. Like, what do you do with that second floor that doesn't have great street access uh, and is maybe a bit dark during the day? But maybe there's an maybe there's another user, like a daycare or like a, a you know some type of after school program or some other type of a nonprofit use that could go in that space and could bring could pay if not full market rent something close to market rent, but they're going to be very stable because they're getting funding from all sorts of different places. So. What's important then is it helps solve financial problems for each of the different parties. It's not, people often say that, uh, look at these and say, well, this is a way of the the private sector providing charity and and their philanthropic contribution. Actually, the answer is in some cases that's true. And in other cases, this is a straight business decision that it's better for them to have someone who uh, they're going to go into partnership with who has access to major philanthropy, philanthropic funding or or long-term government funding to help pay for some of the spaces that might have otherwise been harder for them to rent. And again, I want to come back to this idea that this isn't about poor doors or separating buildings or having poor floors where, you know, you separate out the market uses from those who can't afford to pay. In many cases, what we've seen is that it's in, that it's advantageous for each of them to have the space that they're allocated. And in other cases, you're starting to see the synergy of uses. And then when it comes to this issue of risk, you know, the, the, the market developers often will take the construction risk. And that's really important for nonprofits who, again, have, can often have great aspirations and amazing plans, but are not professional builders and, and project managers. And if they can transfer the construction risk of a major project, I mean, it could be a $20, $25 million build project. And that's part of a much larger uh, apartment uh, condominium building uh, development. If that gets transferred in the contract to the private sector uh, developer, the risk that that project is going to go over budget, that is a major win uh, for a nonprofit that, uh, that that is excellent at providing a social service, but does not have the experience and expertise in managing a, constru- a major construction project. That's fascinating. You're a wealth of insight on this, very art- articulate insight on this. Why don't we start to close down with one final question? L- looking forward, the next couple of years, how would you like to see this, this model develop? I would love to see other cities take a serious look at how they can encourage this model. We are in a moment where we're in a housing crisis in many cities around the world. There's also intersecting crises around mental health, addiction, and climate change. This is an approach that can help build complete communities and communities that that enable uh, many different people and many different users to have spaces in the city. And so what I would love to see is a broader range of cities looking at 
what has been done in Toronto, both in terms of the models that can be mixed together and also how they can be financed and funded and and look to see how this can be advanced elsewhere. I think what Toronto has proven is that you don't need huge programs to get this done. What you need is it's, it's been born out of necessity and the types of uses that have been mixed really push people's imaginations. I mean, we have just uh, completed uh, a project looking at fire stations and emergency service sites uh, in the city. Think about in, in, in whatever city you're in, how many emergency service sites there are, fire stations or ambulance posts that are essentially two-story buildings. Uh, and if you're in a city that's growing upwards, there is so much air rights above those lands. Uh, we did a study showing that we could be building affordable housing right on top of our emergency service sites. So you rebuild the fire station, you give uh, the fire service a state-of-the-art fire station, uh, which in many cities, those are now increasingly becoming not fit for purpose. You build a brand new, beautiful station, and on top of it, you provide affordable housing. You're taking advantage of the land that we have. You're building complete communities and you're uh, advancing the social goals and you're, you're addressing some of the questions that have come about around growth and development and inequality. And you're trying, you're, you're using development as a tool to achieve social uh, inclusion. And I think that's really where I'd love to see other cities pick up on this model and advance it even further than where we've gotten already. Fantastic. Well, Professor Matty Simiatiki, thank you very much for for that explanation and, and your time this morning. Thank you. It was great being with you. Please do join us for another podcast in the future. WBEF episodes of the RICS podcast are published at the end of every month. You can also listen to any previous WBEF podcast that you may have missed by subscribing to the RICS podcast through your preferred podcast provider. The World Built Environment Forum is a a 365-day-a-year platform. You can find out more about the forum, access to other content, and join the community by visiting our website, www.rics.org slash WBEF. Finally, you can download the WBEF app from the Apple Store or Google Play, where you can access the latest innovative global thought leadership content from across the built environment. Thank you.